welcome. Uh, We're in this sermon series about how Jesus did it, how Jesus changed the world. And and the idea of this series is that, uh, you know, Jesus obviously changed the world more than any other person in history. Even if you're not a believer, I think you'd have to admit that. Um, And in the gospel stories, we also get to see him change lives or change communities of lives. And as followers of Jesus, we should probably be interested in changing the world or changing lives or changing communities of lives. But here's an idea. Why don't we try to go about doing that as Jesus did it? Because he's not just Lord and Master, he's actually a model for us. So there's nothing that Jesus did that we ourselves are not called to do. So that's the idea behind the sermon series. We need to warm up, we need to get the brain juices flowing, everybody massage your scalp. And let me ask you a question, it's sort of provocative but very general today. Uh, Let's think about changing the world, changing the world around you. Is it better to do that from inside the world or from outside the world? Like, should you jump in? Should you get involved? Should you go to all of the worldly places? Or should you step outside? Should you be apart? Should you go meditate on mountaintops and, 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 and be a monk on a mountaintop? Which, coincidentally, is what Jesse's going to do, as I understand it correctly. Is that right? Okay, maybe not. Maybe not. But should you be on the inside of things or on the outside of things? What's the best place of influence? I'll give you eight seconds to be brilliant. I hear inside. I hear yes. Doesn't even make sense, but how many say, well, you got to do it from the inside, man? How many like, no, you got to be outside. You got to be apart, man. You have answered twice. You've heard far too many of my sermons. You know, Jesus has a very famous saying about this. He says, we want to be in the world, but not of the world, which is sort of a both-and question. Um, The the tension is that, you know, we want to be in. We want to be be involved. We want to be connected, just like Jesus was, but we don't want to be compromised. We don't want to be tangled, do we? So we have to be in and we have to be out. So just be thinking about that as we go through uh, the sermon today and take a look at a short Bible passage. Uh, You know, there's no clear, neat answer, but I will tell you this. You had better figure out how to be treated like an outsider. You have to be willing to be treated like an alien if you want to pull this off. You You have to figure out how to... You need to be willing to come across as weird, if you know what I mean. To be judged. To be judged for being judgmental, even if you're not judgmental. You have to figure out how to weather all of those things. Otherwise, you don't stand a chance of being influential in a good way in this world or in your community or in a life that you want to change for someone. Are you following me? Everybody clap once, give me an amen, give me a reggae whoop. I'm not sure all of those were reggae whoops, but... And let's uh, read through our passage today. It comes from Luke chapter 4. We're still sort of at the beginning of the Gospels. It's the beginning of of Jesus' changing of the world, transformation. Um, There. 
Uh, and this is a very famous story of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. You know this story? Have you heard this? You know the story? Uh, Jesus has just been baptized in the gospel stories, right? And immediately the Spirit, having filled him with his presence, leads him into the wilderness. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, uh, left the Jordan the River and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. How about that? You don't eat for 40 days, you get hungry, you learn all sorts of things reading Scripture. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, men shall not live on bread alone. He's quoting from the Old Testament there. The devil then led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, sort of this supernaturally high vista. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. You'll have all the political power, all the wealth to do whatever you want. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to if you worship me it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Quoting again from the Old Testament there, he's slapping away the devil's offers. The devil led him to Jerusalem, the, the center of the nation and the center of religious life. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. That's quoting an Old Testament prophecy about how God the Father will protect the promised one, the Messiah, the Christ. And the devil is saying, you know, invoke your rights here. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, quoting from scripture to slap away the devil's offer. When the devil had finished this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Devil's not going to give up, but Jesus has won this round. Then verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. That's the story. You know that story? I'm getting applause for the story. Uh, let's, start, let's start this way, examine the scripture. Uh, at the beginning of the scripture, it said, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led into the wilderness. So in the beginning, Jesus is full of the presence of God's spirit, right? So God is with him. But in verse 14, it said he returned from the season of tempting in the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. So he starts in the presence of the Spirit, but at the end, he returns in the power of the Spirit. Did you guys notice that shift? He comes, not just God with him, but moving in the power of God. And therefore, of course, is better able to change the world, right? And to change people around him if you're flowing in the power of God. So like you have the presence of God, but are you flowing in the power of God yet? 
That's kind of the question that is presented by this passage. And what happened in between that enabled Jesus to flow in God's power better? That's kind of the question that leaps out of this passage for me. A lot of people, I think, treat the passage as, well, this is how to resist sin. Well, I'm okay. But for me, the passage is, no, this is how to get powered up to throw down and change lives. Because it says when Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit, news about him spread through the whole countryside. In other words, he started throwing down. He started doing noteworthy stuff. He started being the transformative Jesus uh, that, that we know and love uh, from history and scripture. Everybody following? Nod your head like really, uh, really strongly. Thank you. Now I know that you're with me. I'm insecure. What bugs me about this passage, what always has bugged me about this passage, is that right after the baptism, the, the Holy Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness, sort of led him out for testing and suffering. And I think, well, that's mean, right? He didn't even get a baptism party or anything like that. Uh, but I kind of understand now, having read the beginning and the end, the Spirit did this because he was prepping Jesus to be a world changer, to be a life changer. Whether you've got to change your life or the lives around you or the world around you, you want to be powered up in the power of God. You, you want to be able to do extraordinary things, and evidently to do extraordinary things, you need to get some extraordinary things straight with God. And that's what the temptations are about, in my opinion. Satan, wittingly or unwittingly, was doing the work of God here by letting Jesus work out some things in an extraordinary way. Amen? All right, so that's the passage. Uh, what I'm going to do is just go through the temptations quickly. Uh, there are three of them. I'll go through them one at a time. And I want to talk about what I think their true nature is, what was the, at the heart of the temptation that, that the devil was offering Jesus. And then I want to talk about what I think the product of the temptation is. Like, what did this do for Jesus? And hopefully that will help us understand the passage a little bit. First, Jesus is hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. We'll talk about fasting some other time, but it's a way to like really, you know, assert a particular sort of dominion over your own body, your own flesh, your own appetites, uh, which can be enormously helpful. But at the end of that time, of course, Jesus is hungry. And so the devil comes and approaches Jesus in his place of desire and need where, where one might think he would be vulnerable. So that's not rocket science. You understand why the devil might do that. If you're feeling very, very hungry in life, the devil's going to come tempt you with Food, you know, maybe junk food or something. If you're feeling very lonely in life, the devil's going to come and tempt you with a relationship that's not quite wholesome, right? If, if you're really uh, struggling financially in life, the devil's going to come along and try to tempt you with a financial solution that maybe isn't quite square or something like that. Or obviously, that, that's kind of how the devil works, and that's, that's what the devils uh, do here. Uh, but what fascinates me is the way that the devil introduced the temptation to Jesus. He says, if you are the son of God, if you're really the son of God, why don't you take care of yourself, man? You know, why don't, why don't you satisfy your desire if you really are the son of God? And that phrase leaps out at me because at Jesus's baptism, some of you will remember from last week, uh, you know, the heavens are open, the spirit comes down, and the father says from heaven in a voice, uh, in some versions, Jesus hears it. In other versions, the whole crowd hears it. 
and says, this is my son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So at Jesus' baptism, uh, God affirms his identity as a child of God, right? The, the father speaks to identity. It's like, you know, whatever else happens, you're my son, you're my kid, and I just want you to know that you're my kid, and you, have, you can expect things from that. You can rely on that. That's like what the father says to Jesus to kind of get him prepped for his mission. And then he goes out into the wilderness. He starts feeling weak and beaten up and beaten down. And the devil comes and says, are you really his kid? I mean, is he really being a father to you? Let's think about this. This is hard. Would a father do this to his child? How many of you immediately recognize stuff like that going on in your own life? You go through a really, really hard time and you start to think, I mean, is God really that into me? (laughs) Because... if this is where following him leads me, maybe I should just take care of myself a little bit. Anybody? Anybody raise a hand? Anybody raise two hands? Anybody give me applause, right? Is that, is not, is that not relevant to the life of Christ? I just wanted to check. That's really relevant uh, to my life. Uh, so that's what's going on here. And, and somehow, you know, make bread out of stone. Right? If Jesus made bread out of stone, it would have been a miracle, not a sin. Right? So this is not a moral call. This is a wisdom call. And Jesus thinks it's wise to say, no, I'm going to be hungry for a while longer. I think that will do me some good. And sometimes life is like that. It's not like morally cut and dry. It's just like, what's the wisest thing to do? Even if you are starving, beaten down from 40 days of exposure in the wilderness, do the wise thing. Play the long game. And that's the product that is being developed in Jesus here. You know, I'm starving. doesn't necessarily mean I'll eat if I can. It means that I'm going to try to do the godly and wise thing first. And I'll get around to eating in time. I mean, you see the difference? We can use different words to describe that, but that's the product. Jesus is becoming that kind of person. That's temptation uh, number one. Being the sort of, uh, and it develops in Jesus the ability to be the sort of person who, who is free from the pressures of providing for himself in the, in the midst of suffering, the sort of person who can be hungry and not necessarily seek to solve his hunger. And the second temptation, uh, Satan in some fashion gives Jesus global perspective and shows him all of the kingdoms and all of the wealth of the kingdoms. Basically he's saying, you, I will make you a benevolent dictator. You can be president of everything and you can have all of the resources at your fingertips that you could ever want and all you have to do is bow to me and, and play my game. But you can solve all the problems you want. This really isn't, a, a, this isn't tempting Jesus' pride, in my opinion. This is the devil tempting Jesus' compassion. Because Jesus came to save the world. Jesus came to change lives. He came to, to set the prisoners free and to provide uh, food for the hungry and, and wealth for the poor and to, uh, and to bring the message of God to everyone. Nobody would be 
nobody should be ignorant of the love of God. And Satan is essentially saying, I will give you the way to do that. I will give you the keys to do that. All you need to do is include me in the process, you know. All you need to do is respect my systems, you know, my ways of doing things. Uh, this is, this is uh, the devil tugging on Jesus' heartstrings is what this is, which is clever, which is really clever, you know. Jesus, you know, I'm making you a great offer here. If you don't take me up on it, you're kind of being mean to the people that you were sent to help, you know? I mean, I'm, do you think the world systems are just? Do you not want to fix them? Look, play along. Don't be so arrogant, Jesus. You know, I, I think that was the conversation, uh, more or less. And Jesus is like, not, not worship God only. Worship God only somehow when you're making difficult calls like that, the first step has to be submitting to the Lord, you know, kind of putting the Lord at the very pinnacle of whatever solution you want to build to whatever problem you want to solve. Again, this doesn't strike me as a, as a cut and dry moral issue. This kind of strikes me as a wisdom issue, you know, and Jesus needs the ability to step back. Like his dreams you know, could come true if he played along with Satan. That's kind of, you know, you could have your dream job. You could have all the money you ever wished for. You could have all the power you ever wished for. You could have all the friends you ever wished for. You could have the family that you desire. As long as you're not totally submitted to God's ways, we can make that happen. What do you think? And Jesus is like, mm, I smell a rat. I smell a rat. I smell a demon. Let's not disparage rats. Uh, everybody get that? Uh, so the outcome is being the sort of person who's content to pursue goodness by pursuing goodness. As opposed to being the sort of person who pursues goodness through pursuing power or wealth. You get it? Right? You get that? It's important that we understand that shift as Christians because the devil has been taking out Christians for centuries by getting us to mess that up. So I'll say it again. The product is being the sort of person who pursues goodness by pursuing goodness as opposed to being the sort of person who pursues good solutions through power or wealth or connections or fill in the blank. Got it? Yeah, so this is a very sort of political thing. We're living in a very politicized time, so I think this is a particularly nice nugget of wisdom for those of us who are feeling a lot of political pressure right now. Politics has reached down into so many threads of life uh, at this point. Um, I will say, I used to, I used to be a, a political policy analyst. I walked in that world for a while and had some quite a bit of experience actually with political arenas and local level, national level, everything. Um, I can say that no arena in the world contaminates people faster than the political arena. Uh, I've known people to have gone to work, I've known people who have gone to work selling drugs. I've known people who have gone to work in sex clubs and emerged more intact than a person who has spent a season in Washington, D.C. 
It's just, and, I, and I, I'm being a little bit caricature-ish right now, but whether it's politics or causes, that has to do with power. It has to do with taking the solution into your own hands. And that's inherently dangerous. Some of you have worked in politics out there. I know some of you. Can I get any men? Yeah. Power is a seductive thing. Um, so, I don't know. There's just lovely wisdom, humility in that that I think is awesome. And then there's the temple temptation. Uh, Satan whisked Jesus to the top of the temple. You're at the center of the religious world at this point. Um, and he says, you know, it's written. The devil has gotten clever now, so uh, the devil is using scripture to defeat Jesus' scripture, right? Uh, and this is a very religious place. And so the devil is suggesting a piece of scripture. And said, so, you know, it's written if, if uh, the promised one were to throw himself, you know, off a cliff or something, that, that the father would send angels to whisk him up, lest his foot strike the ground, lest he stub his toe or something like that. So it's a clever little, clever little temptation. And, and, uh, and it kind of appeals to Jesus' instinct to defend God, right? I mean, throw yourself off here. Does it not say that God will protect you? I mean, can you trust God or not, Jesus? Very clever, very clever. Um, and the quick answer would have been, yes, I stand on the truth of Scripture, the Lord will protect me as it is written. You know, and I don't know what would have happened there. Um, would have been interesting. But Jesus, again, kind of sniffs out uh, the trick. Uh, and, uh, you know, the temptation was, I put it this way, see if this makes sense. The temptation was to get Jesus to prove that God was on his side. Right, which is the nature of religion, by the way, you know, to prove things to, you know, religion is for people who fear God or fear people who are not really free. The spirit of religion is what I mean. Religiosity might be a better word. Jesus wasn't into religiosity. He was into spiritual truth and following God and stuff like that. Um, so, hey, Jesus, you know, step, step off the pinnacle Prove that God is faithful and prove that God is with you. You ever wanted to prove that God was with you? I, I, I do, because I get frustrated a lot and I get angry a lot. I'd be like, you know, God, I've done a lot for you. How about you do something for me? You know, and then I have a lot of emotional ways to justify that because I'm really struggling here because I am your son after all. You know, are you on my side or not? That's important for me to know. And then if you're really religious, and it's important for me to prove to other people as well, you know, that, that God is with me. That's kind of what's going on here. Um, whenever I read this temptation, uh, I, uh, I remember a quote from Abraham Lincoln, who's one of my childhood heroes. Any Lincoln buffs out there? And, and the story goes that this Methodist preacher visited Lincoln in the White House one day. Uh, and Lincoln was known for being unchurchy. Like he, he worshiped God, he talked a lot about God, but he was not uh, really a, he was not approved by any denomination uh, in the country. So the Methodist pastor went to see him, to minister to him, to pray with him, which Lincoln always welcomed. He had an unusually open door in the Oval Office. And the Methodist pastor said, you know, President Lincoln, I just want to assure you 
uh, that our cause to bring freedom uh, to the enslaved, uh, to bring justice to the country, um, I want to assure you that God is on our side. And then Lincoln, in a typical way, leaned back and said, uh, I would much rather be on God's side. <laughs> uh, and then that saying has been handed down to us as sort of presidential apocrypha. But that's the temptation, right? That's the temptation, right? To prove that God is on your side or to be humble and to constantly evaluate whether you're on God's side. You see the difference? Not a cut and dry moral issue, but there's a wisdom issue there. And, and that's the product that this temptation this temptation is developing. You want to be the sort of person who doesn't need to prove that God is with you through obligations or tests. But you also don't want to be the sort of person who virtue signals, who wants to convince other people that God is with you, that you're in the right. You just don't need to be recognized in order to pursue goodness. Just pursue goodness. And that's kind of what Jesus was getting here. Are you feeling the idea of the sort of person that this wilderness experience was producing? Jesus was subjecting himself to this sort of workout, to this sort of, uh, I don't know, what would you call it? It's not a makeover because he was pretty good going in. But, you know, he's developing. He's developing in the wilderness just as we are called to develop in our wilderness and the word that jumps to mind, the biblical word that jumps to mind as I consider what is being produced in Jesus here is the word holiness or holy. It's a word that is used often in scripture. Uh, it's called different things at different time and scripture has different languages in it. You will read it as holy or holiness or sanctified or set apart. Uh, the original Hebrew word for holiness literally means weird or peculiar. You know, there's something different about you. There's something about you that doesn't quite fit anywhere except maybe in the heart of God. And the word that the Bible uses for something like that is holy. You just like you've done the work to really be God's man or God's woman, which just looks a little bit alien to everyone. The worldly people, the super religious people, it's just you know, sometimes I put it this way. Only God makes actual individuals. People that are just themselves in the Lord. You know, and none of the tugs and the pushes and the pulls of life really change that. You know, you just kind of stand with the Lord. Starvation hunger doesn't change that. Every offer of power or wealth or comfort doesn't change it, you know. Tension between you and the Lord and wanting to prove him and wanting to really be recognized as his, it doesn't change it. You just kind of, you're just yourself, man. You're just yourself in the Lord and you're just going to do what you do that you feel God has called you to do and ain't nothing going to shake you. Holiness. That's the best way I can describe holiness. Are you feeling it? Feeling it? Give me a holy whoop. There's uh, nothing in Jesus' body of teaching that kind of affirms and characterizes this idea of holiness more than Jesus' teaching on love, which is kind of his basic teaching, right? And Jesus was kind of big on love. 
And the way that he teaches love, I think about his Sermon on the Mount, which is his basic moral teaching in all of Scripture, he says, well, I mean, the famous line, the summary line is, love your, can't hear you, love your enemies, love your enemies. And he goes further and he says, you know, if you love your friends, if you love your family, if you love your class, if, you know, you love your religious class, if you love your people, your tribe, your community, there's nothing special about that. Jesus actually says that. It's like, and even, even sinners do that. <laughs> Here's what's unique. Love your enemies. Love the people who are trying to destroy you. And do it well. He follows it up with a line saying, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, you want to get something right, you get this right. This is what makes a person complete. You just love because you're loving. It doesn't matter who's standing in front of you. It could be someone trying to destroy you, a bona fide enemy. But you just do you, man. You just do you because you are an actual individual. You are a holy person. You are free from desires and temptations and, and clever traps of all sorts. Just love indiscriminately. Who's ever in front of you. That's offensive love. He was saying that to people who were literally being murdered by the Romans in the streets daily, and Jesus was saying, yeah, you know, if they slap you on the face, turn the other cheek and smile. If, if they want to steal your coat, give them your shirt as well. I just love them, man. Just love them. It's no wonder he got killed. That's a very offensive message about love. But man, is it holy, right? It's crazy love. It's crazy holy. And so that's always been a focus point for me. That helps me understand what was being produced here in, in, in Christ just to be a truly free person, to love your enemy, to love those who are trying to destroy you. Man, now that's a definition of freedom that's deep. Really, really deep. Something like that, anyway. Anybody uh, up for changing the world in a holy way? I mean, I take it as an open question, frankly, because it would be far, far easier to try it some other fashion, right? There were a lot of shortcuts offered to Jesus, and that's kind of what that was about. Oh, no, you could do this easier. You could do this more easily. Or you could do it the Jesus way, which seems super inefficient and crazy. Just, just do goodness. Just do love. Be willing to be hungry and to do without. Be willing to be weak even when you have offers to be made strong. Right? Be willing to be good and to not test God and to not get a ton of reassurance from him all the time because this is a life of faith, not a life of certainty. Holiness. Lesson number one in this series is if you want to be an exceptionally influential person, you have to be willing to be a very common person. If you want to be spiritually exceptional, be spiritually common. Take, take care of the very basic things. And then number two in this series is, well, you know, if you want to change the world, if you want to change lives, if you want to change your own life, be different, be holy. Think carefully 
be willing to set aside obvious solutions for the wiser solution. And sometimes that takes a little reflection and a little holiness. And holiness is so tricky that even Jesus had to go through a serious workout to get a grip on it. It takes some focus and intention for us to get this right. But when we get it right, then we can just go back in power. You know, we can start throwing down and skating through things and solutions present themselves to us in a way that we would have never seen before. You know, and there's a lot of discipline in it. There's a lot of craziness in it. There's a lot of offense in it. But we can find the path. And finding the path to follow Jesus. That's what we're talking about. I'm just going to take uh, 60 seconds and I'm going to let you do a little reflection with the Lord. I expect the Holy Spirit to be speaking to you about tests in your own heart or tests in your own circumstances.